Hey, Forge family. Last podcast, we were in in James chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. This epistle was sent out to followers of Jesus who were primarily Jewish and who continued to meet in synagogues. And these scattered brothers and sisters were suffering. James introduces the topic of trials and testings. Our faith and that of those who received James's letter for the first time will face trials. James jumped in to say that when our faith is tested and we endure, we remain faith-filled, we pass the test. We are approved of by God. Our trials and testings are designed by God to produce something of greater value, patience, steadfastness, staying power, toughness under trial. And when we do that, we move on to maturity. Then James took up the topic of wisdom and what we are to do when we lack it. We're to ask for it in faith that God gives generously with no backbiting and no reproach. All right, family, let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are making of us men and women of the sound heart and the sound mind, brothers and sisters of shared faith. Your spirit keeps us focused so that we are not tossed about and we are not double-souled. And for that, Lord, we're thankful. We're grateful. We love you, Lord. Amen. All right now, Forge family, I've asked you to be reading through James week by week. Thank you for doing that. But I suggest you come with an open Bible and you come with a pen and a notebook uh, to these sessions so that you can not only hear it, but you can see it and you can write out what it is that touches your heart. So let's begin. This podcast will be looking at James 1, verses 9 to 18. So we're going to read verses 9 to 11 to start with. But let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position, and let the rich man glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. So James introduces us to the mostly poor Christians who made up the early church. They were not destitute, but life was hard. Those in the synagogue system knew what it was like to be cut off from help with jobs, loans, food, clothing, lodging, the care system that God put in place in the Jewish community. Because they were followers of Jesus as Messiah, and they were suffering for it. Abrasions and jealousies were surely present between the haves and the have-nots. So picture James here again. He's our older brother in the faith. And he comes to drape his arm around the shoulders of lowly brothers. And if you find yourself in that place where you just kind of go, Lord, I don't know how I'm going to make the rent. 
I don't know how to make this payment. I don't know what to do. I don't have any resources. That's when James comes and drapes his arm around the shoulders and he gives you a mild command. Okay? It's imperative, but it's, it's softened by his presence and the language. He says, let those of you who are in humble circumstances, what does it say? Rejoice. Exalt. Glory in the high position that the Lord Jesus has given them. You see, they were sons and daughters of the king. Their sins and guilt were washed away. They had obtained eternal life and were seated in the heavenlies. So even though they were of little significance in the world, they had much to rejoice in. And James gently says they are to boast. It's kalkasla. It's a word that typically has negative negative connotations. But here, you know, as it's used in the Septuagint, it means to rejoice and to glory in the high position that, the, that these poor people were given by Christ. In him, they were somebody. And then James continues to remind the poor that the rich man, who I want you to note here, is not referred to here as a believer, is likewise supposed to glory in being brought low. Those who thought that they were somebody, but they were without faith in Jesus as the risen Christ, they're destined to be humiliated. That what they relied on, what they had done, what they owned, how they looked, that was all passing away. And then in verse 11, James uses the Palestinian experiential descriptor. The Shiraco, the Simum, the Kamsin. It's the scorching east wind that rises up from the deserts to the south and the east of Palestine and sweeps in with dust and scorching heat. I mean, in history, whole armies have been swept away and buried, just like the Egyptians in the Red Sea, by those powerful, fierce, scorching winds. Within an hour or so, that scorching wind and the dust could take a green landscape and leave it brown, crumbly, and dead. So to the rich man in the midst of his pursuits. Now, let's update that to the 21st century. So to the rich man in the midst of his pursuit of his, of his arbitrage, his short contracts, his 401ks, his island purchases, his jet flights, on his own personal jet, mind you, he is destined to be desiccated and die. Now, nowhere does James spiritualize poverty. He later commands us to care for the poor. Each man, the poor one and the rich man, must carefully check their attitude toward possessions. You see, there's, there's a razor here. Do we worship and value things or do we worship and honor Christ? The kingdom of God involves a coming eschatological reversal. Eschatology is the doctrine of end times things. And this reversal that's coming is the lifting up of the humble and the humbling of those who thought they were exalted. Now for us, this is a problem. 
do we relatively wealthy Californians divest ourselves of all these things? Or do we ignore James as if he's an overwrought ascetic? The answer is neither. Wealth can lead you astray in your value system. Or not. Poverty can lead you astray in your value system. Or not. The question James is probing here is, whose man, whose woman are you? If you belong to Jesus, your values must come under his control and lordship. All right, let's read verses 12 to 18. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say that he is tempted when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he, God, brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures." Now, starting at verse 12, James begins with the word blessed. That's the word that's used all over the New Testament, but particularly in Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, blessed are the poor, etc. Blessed, blessed, blessed. Makarios means happy or blessed. And goes on to say that the man or the woman who perseveres and hangs on, the one who endures trials, is going to be approved. He will pass the test. He is going to be blessed, and he receives the crown of life, or the crown which is life, pictured by the laurel wreath placed upon the head of the victor in the Olympics, the ancient athletic competitions in, in Athens. Further, that crown that is life is given to all that love the Lord. And it's not just any list of global evangelists and powerful ministers. The text says directly to all those that are loving him now and always. The ones who endured trial for their faith get his approval, a crown, and evidence that their salvation is real. Now again, James leans in to speak in your ear. This time in verse 13, it is a soft imperative, a strong, quiet correction. Let no one say, God tempted me. You recall the blame game in Genesis chapter 3? God, you gave me this woman, and, and, and she gave me the fruit to eat. And Eve turns and says, but the serpent tempted me, and, and, I, and I ate it, and, and I gave it to my husband, etc., and on and on. 
if you find yourself angry with God, and I confess I have, I've been there, or, or disappointed with God, and, I, and I've been there too, you and I have at that point lost track of his person and his nature. He is not temptable. Therefore, he cannot lay out a temptation. Now, the church cycles through a common delusion, and it's still around. You know, within the last two decades, I'm, I'm very conscious of it, okay? And that since God is so in control of all things, why? Why, he ordains everything, even ordained that we would succumb to sin. God is so in charge that everything has to be laid at his feet, Wrong. That theological error does not take into account the protracted role of Satan who comes to kill, steal, destroy, deceive, and devour. When Satan takes a shot, God steps in as a redeemer, as a healer, and as a holy warrior on your behalf. Craig Blomberg and Miriam Kamal are, are two expositors. I'm, I'm, I'm really enjoying their work in, in the book of James. And, and they have this quote, and I just went, I can't say it any better. So here it is. James does not say that God never allows temptation into our lives, nor does he imply that God never tests his people. We can turn to the Lord in times of temptation, knowing he did not cause it. The question remains, though, when a temptation is in my eye, in my mind, in my hand, in my mouth, what am I going to do with it? What do I do with any intense longing for an improper object, experience, relationship, etc.? James is here warning against the powerful desire to do evil. The desire for self-exaltation, the draw of personal gratification, and the temptation of grasping safety at the expense of the right. Now, ten years ago, when Jan and I were leading a team of singles and couples in an outreach to the whole town of Monterra, one of the team members, a young woman, was privately being torn by the choice of faithfully trusting God for a husband and the opposite of getting her man any way she could. She was in a place of faith testing, and she failed the test. That sent a shockwave through our ministry family. We loved her. We still do. We love her. But she was suddenly gone. Now, here we see in the text that, that James uses fishing and hunting terms to trap and to snare as he describes temptation. <clears throat> when I was about five years old, my dad took me fishing up the drainage of the White River that flows off of Mount Rainier up in Washington State. And he parked the car on the side of the highway. We had to hike a short way downstream over berms of river rock and gravel left by flood stage runoff. And finally, we arrived at a clear creek that ran slowly meandering toward the larger river. A big log had fallen into the creek, but the water, clear water, still 
flowed smoothly under it. My dad baited my rod with a translucent pink salmon egg on a hook and bit down on a small split shot to send the bait to the bottom. I swung the rod and the egg out in front of the log and dropped it into the water onto the sand bottom of the creek. With a burst of speed, a trout shot out from under the log, grabbed the salmon egg, and zipped back out of sight. And all I saw was left was just a poof of sand that settled. All I had to do was lift the tip of the rod and swing that trout out into the air and into my hand. Now, James, as I mentioned, uses the ancient word for bait. It's deliazzo. Sometimes, when we begin with a temptation, we're quick to choose the right way out. But then the enemy ups the ante. He changes the bait. All to entice. And that's an operant word in James chapter 1, verse 14. He wants to get us to break out of our safe place and take the bait. In chapter 1, verse 15, James describes the life cycle of sin. When we've been exposed, then enticed to something that we think we lack or we crave, we act and we act on our own strong desires and choose that sinful action or attitude. It is then that sin, having been established in us, takes over and begins to lead us toward spiritual death. James points out that once the bait is taken, here in verse 15, there's a shift in the text to a slow but sure process of reproduction. For the Greek scholar, there's a vivid sexual image in verse 15. It relates to a woman taking a man's seed and accomplishing conception, resulting in a live birth. The fertilizing agent here described is falsehood, a lie, a shaved or shaped truth that we seize and sin begins its conquest of our soul. Verse 16, James shifts physical position. He now has a hand on your shoulder and he's in your face. His command is now direct and sharp-toned. He says, stop being deceived. Do not allow yourself to be deceived. At the same time, James, while he's in your face, he's using the term agape toy. The term here for beloved. That softens the sharp correction. And with it comes the warning that Satan is a master deceiver, blinding men's eyes about sin. James wants us to catch the little foxes. That first incursion of enticement, that first little zing where you go, ooh, what's that? I like that, etc. Then verse 17, here is what we should not be deceived about. All good giving and every perfect gift is coming down from above. Now, it's coming from the Father of lights. Okay, 
one of the key gifts that he gives is Holy Spirit. In Luke 11, verse 13. Yes, God gives life. He sends the rain. There's sustenance and there's relationships. And there's protection and there's children, etc. Okay? God is the one who fathered the universe. The lights that are in the heavens. Sending good gifts speaks of God's unvarying nature. And he never changes. James is giving a view of Father God to those who may have doubted him. The phrase, shadow of turning, is thought to be a precise but ancient scientific reference now lost without corroboration in other Greek texts. It refers to the moving shadow of a sundial and to the whirling display of heavenly bodies overhead, changing season by season. And James just says, God does not shift or drift in his dealings with mankind. And verse 18 closes this section in which God, by his will, births us, brings us forth. Now, the same word used in the life cycle of sin in verse 15 is, is present, but only here. The, the God who has fathered the universe now adds saved mankind to his eternal family. And the text says we are birthed by the word of truth. Here, in this post-resurrection age of grace, gatherings of believers that refer to, you know, I think that, that, that refers to the witnessed accounts, you know, this word of truth, yeah, the word of truth that's, that's spoken into these gatherings of believers would be the witnessed account of his incarnation, birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and, and the very promise of Jesus to return. We are changed in some ways swiftly, in other ways incrementally. The story of Augustine following his conversion speaks to this. He's walking down the street in North Africa when the woman he had been living with called to him. He did not respond. She ran him down crying, Augustine, it is I! Augustine said, I know, but it is no longer I. James concludes verse 18 with a reference that we have become First fruits. Now obviously that's a promise of more to come. But in the Old Testament, the first fruits from agricultural products, from first births, firstborn of your animals and your flocks, and even your children, were set aside as holy to the Lord. In this age of grace, we are to be holy as he is holy. We are to reflect God's character and his love to the watching world. All right, Forge family, what I want us to get here is that God himself, by his will, birthed us and fills us with his spirit so that we are not deceived back into sin. That not being deceived bit right there is the antidote 
that blocks the reproductive process of enticement, entrapment, and sin that leads to spiritual death. All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for making a way to the Father of lights whose good gifts bless us and set us free. We would reflect your character and your love. Amen. All right, Forge family, you are beloved. We'll see you soon.